Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I will be reading Little Lord Fauntleroy by Frances Hodgson Burnett. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One Cedric himself knew nothing whatever about it. It had never been even mentioned to him. He knew that his papa had been an Englishman because his mama had said so. But then, his papa had died when he was so little a boy 
that he could not remember very much about him, except that he was big and had blue eyes and a long moustache, and that it was a splendid thing to be carried around the room on his shoulder. Since his papa's death, Cedric had found out that it was best not to talk to his mamma about him. When his father was ill, Cedric had been sent away, and when he returned, everything was over, and his mother, who had been very ill too, was only just beginning to sit in her chair by the window. She was pale and thin, and all the dimples had gone from her pretty face, and her eyes looked large and mournful, and she was dressed in black. Dearest, said Cedric. His papa had called her that always, and so the little boy had learned to say it. Dearest, is my papa better? He felt her arms tremble, and so he turned his curly head and looked in her face. There was something in it that made him feel that he was going to cry. Dearest, he said. Is he well? Then suddenly, his loving little heart told him that he'd better put both his arms around her neck and kiss her again and again and keep his soft cheek close to hers. And he did so. And she laid her face on his shoulder and cried bitterly, holding him as if she could never let him go again. Yes, he is well, she sobbed. He's quite, quite well. But we, we have no one left but each other. No one at all. Then, little as he was, he understood that his big, handsome young papa would not come back any more. That he was dead, as he had heard of other people being, although he could not comprehend exactly what strange thing had brought all this sadness about. It was because his mamma always cried when he spoke of his papa that he secretly made up his mind it was better not to speak of him very often to her. And he found out, too, that it was better not to let her sit still and look into the fire or out of the window without moving or talking. He and his mamma knew very few people and lived what might have been thought very lonely lives. Although Cedric did not know it was lonely until he got older and heard why it was they had no visitors. Then he was told that his mamma was an orphan and quite alone in the world when his papa had married her. She was very pretty and had been living as a companion to a rich old lady who was not kind to her. And one day, Captain Cedric Errol was calling at the house, saw her run up the stairs with tears on her eyelashes, and she looked so sweet and innocent and sorrowful that the captain could not forget her. And after many strange things had happened, they knew each other well and loved each other dearly and were married, although their marriage brought them the ill will of several persons. The one who was most angry of all, however, was the captain's father, who lived in England and was a very rich and important old nobleman with a very bad temper and a very violent dislike to America and Americans. He had two sons older than Captain Cedric, and it was the law that the elder of these sons should inherit the family title and estates, which were very rich and splendid. If the eldest son died, the next one would be heir. So though he was a member of such a great family, there was little chance that Captain Cedric would be very rich himself. But it so happened that nature had given to the youngest son gifts which he had not bestowed upon his elder brothers. He had a beautiful face and a fine, strong, graceful figure, 
He had a bright smile and a sweet voice. He was brave and generous and had the kindest heart in the world and seemed to have the power to make everyone love him. And it was not so with his elder brothers. Neither of them was handsome or very kind or clever. When they were boys at Eton, they were not popular. When they were at college, they cared nothing for study and wasted both time and money and made few real friends. The old earl, their father, was constantly disappointed and humiliated by them. His heir was no honour to his noble name and did not promise to end in being anything but a selfish, wasteful, insignificant man with no manly or noble qualities. It was very bitter, the old earl thought, that the son who was only third and would have only a very small fortune should be the one who had all the gifts and all the charms and all the strength and beauty. Sometimes he almost hated the handsome young man because he seemed to have the good things which should have gone with the stately title and the magnificent estates. And yet, in the depths of his proud, stubborn old heart, he could not help caring very much for his youngest son. It was in one of his fits of petulance that he sent him off to travel in America. He thought he should send him away for a while so that he should not be made angry by constantly contrasting him with his brothers who were at that time giving him a great deal of trouble by their wild ways. But after six months, he began to feel lonely and longed in secret to see his son again. So he wrote to Captain Cedric and ordered him home. The letter he wrote crossed on its way, a letter the captain had just written to his father, telling of his love for the pretty American girl and his intended marriage. And when the Earl received that letter, he was furiously angry. Bad as his temper was, he had never given way to it in his life, as he gave way to it when he read the captain's letter. For an hour he raged like a tiger, and then he sat down and wrote to his son and ordered him never to come near his old home, nor to write to his father or brothers again. He told him he might live as he pleased and die where he pleased, that he should be cut off from his family forever and that he need never expect help from his father as long as he lived. The captain was very sad when he read the letter. He was very fond of England, and he dearly loved the beautiful home where he had been born. He had even loved his ill-tempered old father, and had sympathized with him in his disappointments. But he knew he need expect no kindness from him in the future. At first he scarcely knew what to do. He had not been brought up to work, and had no business experience. But he had courage and plenty of determination. So he sold his commission in the English army, and after some trouble found a situation in New York, and married. The change from his old life in England was very great, but he was young and happy, and he hoped that hard work would do great things for him in the future. He had a small house on a quiet street, and his little boy was born there, and everything was cheerful in a simple way, that he was never sorry for a moment that he had married the rich old lady's pretty companion just because she was so sweet and he loved her and she loved him. She was very sweet indeed and her little boy was like both her and his father. Though he was born in so quiet and cheap a little home, it seemed as if there had never been a more fortunate baby. In the first place, he was always well and so he never gave anyone trouble. In the second place, 
He had so sweet a temper and ways so charming that he was a pleasure to everyone. And in the third place, he was so beautiful to look at that he was quite a picture. Instead of being a bald-headed baby, he started in life with a quantity of soft, fine, gold-colored hair which curled up at the ends and went into loose rings by the time he was six months old. He had big brown eyes and long eyelashes and a darling little face. He had so strong a back and such splendid sturdy legs that at nine months he learned suddenly to walk. His manners were so good for a baby that it was delightful to make his acquaintance. He seemed to feel that everyone was his friend, and when anyone spoke to him, when he was in his carriage in the street, he would give the stranger one sweet, serious look with the brown eyes, and then follow it with a lovely, friendly smile. And the consequence was that there was not a person in the neighborhood of the quiet street where he lived, even to the grocery man at the corner, who was considered the crossest creature alive, who was not pleased to see him and speak to him. And every month of his life he grew handsomer and more interesting. When he was old enough to walk out with his nurse, dragging a small wagon and wearing a short white kilt skirt and a big white hat set back on his curly yellow hair, he was so handsome and strong and rosy that he attracted everyone's attention. And his nurse would come home and tell his mama stories of the ladies who would stop their carriages to look at and speak to him and of how pleased they were when he talked to them in his cheerful little way, as if he had known them always. His greatest charm was his cheerful, fearless, quaint little way of making friends with people. I think it arose from his having a very confiding nature and a kind little heart that sympathized with everyone and wished to make everyone as comfortable as he liked to be himself. It made him very quick to understand the feelings of those about him. Perhaps this had grown on him too, because he had lived so much with his father and mother, who were always loving and considerate and tender and well-bred. He had never heard an unkind or uncourteous word spoken at home. He had always been loved and caressed and treated tenderly, and so his childish soul was full of kindness and innocent warm feeling. He had always heard his mamma called by pretty loving names, as though he used them himself when he spoke to her. He had always seen that his papa watched over her and took great care of her, and so he learned, too, to be careful of her. So when he knew his papa would come back no more, and saw how very sad his mamma was, there gradually came into his kind little heart the thought that he must do what he could to make her happy. He was not much more than a baby, but the thought was in his mind whenever he climbed upon her knee and kissed her and put his curly head on her neck, and when he brought his toys and picture books to show her, and when he curled up quietly by her side as she used to lie on the sofa. He was not old enough to know of anything else to do, so he did what he could do, and was more of a comfort to her than he could have understood. Oh, Mary, he heard her say once to her old servant. I'm sure he's trying to help me in his innocent way. I know he is. He looks at me sometimes with a loving, wandering little look, as if he were sorry for me, and then he will come and pet me or show me something. He's such a little man, I really think he knows. As he grew older, he had a great many quaint little ways which amused and interested people greatly. He was so much of a companion for his mother that she scarcely cared for any other. 
They used to walk together and talk together and play together. When he was quite a little fellow, he learned to read, and after that he used to lie on the hearth rug in the evening and read aloud, sometimes stories and sometimes big books, such as older people read, and sometimes even the newspaper. And often, at such times, Mary, in the kitchen, would hear Mrs. Errol laughing with delight at the quaint things he said. Mary was very fond of him and very proud of him too. She had been with his mother ever since he was born and after his father's death had been cook and housemaid and nurse and everything else. She was proud of his graceful, strong little body and his pretty manners and especially proud of the bright curly hair which waved over his forehead and fell in charming love locks on his shoulders. She was willing to work early and late to help his mamma make his small suits and keep them in order. Aristocratic, isn't it? She would say. And I like to see the child on Fifth Avenue, as looks like him and steps out as handsome as himself. And every man, woman and child looking after him in his bit of black velvet skirt, made out of the mistress's old gown, and his little head up, and his curly hair flying and shining. It's like a young lord he looks. Cedric did not know that he looked like a young lord. He did not know what a lord was. His greatest friend was the grocery man at the corner, the cross grocery man, who was never cross to him. His name was Mr. Hobbs, and Cedric admired and respected him very much. He thought him a very rich and powerful person. He had so many things in his store, prunes and figs and oranges and biscuits, and he had a horse and a wagon. Cedric was fond of the milkman and the baker and the applewoman. But he liked Mr. Hobbs best of all and was in such terms of intimacy with him that he went to see him every day and often sat with him quite a long time discussing the topics of the hour. It was quite surprising how many things they found to talk about, the 4th of July, for instance. When they began to talk about the 4th of July, there really seemed no end to it. Mr. Hobbs had a very bad opinion of the British, and he told the whole story of the Revolution, relating very wonderful and patriotic stories about the villainy of the enemy and the bravery of the revolutionary heroes. And he even generously repeated part of the Declaration of Independence. Cedric was so excited that his eyes shone and his cheeks were red, and his curls were all rubbed and tumbled into a yellow mop. He could hardly wait to eat his dinner after he went home. He was so anxious to tell his mamma. It was, perhaps, Mr. Hobbs who gave him his first interest in politics. Mr. Hobbs was fond of reading the newspapers, and so Cedric heard a great deal about what was going on in Washington. And Mr. Hobbs would tell him whether the president was doing his duty or not. And once, when there was an election, he found it all quite grand. And probably but for Mr. Hobbs, and Cedric, the country might have been wrecked. Mr. Hobbs took him to see a great torchlight procession, and many of the men who carried torches remembered afterward a stout man who stood near a lamppost and held on his shoulder a handsome little shouting boy who waved his cap in the air. It was not long after this election when Cedric was between seven and eight years old that the very strange thing happened which made so wonderful a change in his life. It was quite curious, too, that the day it happened, 
he had been talking to Mr. Hobbs about England and the Queen. And Mr. Hobbs had some very severe things to say about the aristocracy, being especially indignant against earls and marquises. It had been a hot morning, and after playing soldiers with some friends of his, Cedric had gone into the store to rest and had found Mr. Hobbs looking very fierce over a piece of the illustrated London news, which contained a picture of some court ceremony. Ah, he said, that's the way they go on now, but they'll get enough of it some day. When those they've trod on rise and blow them up sky high, earls and marquises and all, it's coming, and they may look out for it. Cedric had perched himself as usual on the high stool and pushed his hat back and put his hands in his pockets and delicate compliment to Mr. Hobbs. Did you ever know many marquises, Mr. Hobbs? Cedric inquired. Or earls? No, answered Mr. Hobbs with indignation. I guess not. I'd like to catch one of them inside here, that's all. I'll have no grasping tyrants sitting round in my cracker barrels. And he was so proud of the sentiment that he looked round proudly and mopped his forehead. Perhaps they wouldn't be earls if they knew any better, said Cedric feeling some vague sympathy for their unhappy condition. Wouldn't they? said Mr. Hobbs. They just glory in it. It's in them. They're a bad lot. They were in the midst of their conversation when Mary appeared. Cedric thought she had come to buy some sugar, perhaps, but she had not. She looked almost pale and as if she were excited about something. Come home, darling, she said. The mistress is wanting you. Cedric slipped down from his stool. Does she want me to go out with her, Mary? he asked. Good morning, Mr. Hobbs. I'll see you again. He was surprised to see Mary staring at him in a dumbfounded fashion, and he wondered why she kept shaking her head. What's the matter, Mary? he said. Is it the hot weather? No, said Mary, but there are strange things happening to us. Has the sun given Darius a headache? he inquired anxiously. But it was not that. When he reached his own house, there was a coupe standing before the door and someone was in the little parlour talking to his mamma. Mary hurried him upstairs and put on his best summer suit of cream-coloured flannel with a red scarf around his waist and combed out his curly locks. Lords, is it? He heard her say. And the noble and gentry. Lords, indeed, worse luck. It was very puzzling, but he felt sure his mamma would tell him what all the excitement meant so he allowed Mary to bemoan herself without asking many questions. When he was dressed, he ran downstairs and went into the parlour. A tall, thin, old gentleman with a sharp face was sitting in an armchair. His mother was standing nearby with a pale face, and he saw that there were tears in her eyes. Oh, said he, she cried out, and ran to her little boy, and caught him in her arms, and kissed him, in a frightened, troubled way. Oh, said he, darling. The tall old man rose from his chair and looked at Cedric with his sharp eyes. He rubbed his thin chin with a bony hand as he looked. He seemed not at all displeased. And so, he said at last, slowly, and so, this is little Lord Fauntleroy. Chapter 2 There was never more amazed little boy than Cedric during the week that followed. There was never so strange or so unreal a week. In the first place, the story his mamma told him was a very curious one. He was obliged to hear it two or three times before he could understand it. 
He could not imagine what Mr. Hobbs would think of it. It began with earls. His grandpapa, whom he had never seen, was an earl, and his eldest uncle, if he had not been killed by a fall from his horse, would have been an earl too in time. And after his death, the other uncle would have been an earl, if he had not died suddenly in Rome of a fever. After that, his own papa, if he had lived, would have been an earl. But since they had all died, and only Cedric was left, it appeared that he was to be an earl after his grandpapa's death. And for the present, he was Lord Fauntleroy. He turned quite pale when he was first told of it. Oh, dearest, he said. I should rather not be an earl. None of the boys are earls. Can't I not be one? But it seemed to be unavoidable. And when that evening they sat together by the open window, looking out into the shabby street, he and his mother had a long talk about it. Cedric sat on his footstool, clasping one knee in his favourite attitude, and wearing a bewildered little face, rather red from the exertion of thinking. His grandfather had sent for him to come to England, and his mamma thought he must go. Because, she said, looking out of the window with sorrowful eyes, I know your papa would wish it to be so, said he. He loved his home very much, and there are many things to be thought of that a little boy can't quite understand. I should be a selfish little mother if I did not send you. When you are a man, you will see why. Said he shook his head mournfully. I shall be very sorry to leave Mr. Hobbs, he said. I'm afraid he'll miss me, and I shall miss him, and I shall miss them all. When Mr. Havisham, who was the family lawyer of the Earl of Dorincourt, and who had been sent by him to bring Lord Fauntleroy to England, came the next day, Cedric heard many things. But somehow it did not console him to hear that he was to be a very rich man when he grew up, and that he would have castles here and castles there, and great parks and deep mines and great estates and tenantry. He was troubled about his friend, Mr. Hobbs, and he went to see him at the store soon after breakfast in great anxiety of mind. He found him reading the morning paper, and he approached him with a grave demeanour. He really felt it would be a great shock to Mr. Hobbs to hear what had befallen him. And on his way to the store, he'd been thinking how it would be best to break the news. Hello, said Mr. Hobbs. Morning. Good morning, said Cedric. He did not climb up on the high stool as usual, but sat down on a cracker box and clasped his knee. I was so silent for a few moments that Mr. Hobbs finally looked up inquiringly over the top of his newspaper. Hello, he said again. Cedric gathered all his strength of mind together. Mr. Hobbs, he said, do you remember what we were talking about yesterday morning? Well, replied Mr. Hobbs, seems to me it was England. Yes, said Cedric, but just when Mary came for me, you know. Mr. Hobbs rubbed the back of his head. We was mentioning Queen Victoria and the aristocracy. Yes, said Cedric, rather hesitatingly, and, and earls, don't you know? Why, yes, returned Mr. Hobbs. We did touch him up a little. That's so. Cedric flushed up to the curly bang on his forehead. Nothing so embarrassing as this had ever happened to him in his life. He was a little afraid that it might be a trifle embarrassing to Mr. Hobbs too. You said, he proceeded, that you wouldn't have him sitting round in your cracker barrels. So I did, returned Mr. Hobbs stoutly, and I meant it. Let him try it, that's all. 
Mr. Hobbs, said Cedric. One is sitting on this box now. Mr. Hobbs almost jumped out of his chair. What? he exclaimed. Yes, Cedric announced with due modesty. I am one, or I'm going to be. I won't deceive you. Mr. Hobbs looked agitated. He rose up suddenly and went to look at the thermometer. The mercury's got into your head, he exclaimed, turning back to examine his young friend's countenance. It is a hot day. How do you feel? Got any pain? When did you begin to feel that way? He put his big hand on the little boy's hair. This was more embarrassing than ever. Thank you, said Seddy. I'm all right. There's nothing the matter with my head. I'm sorry to say it's true, Mr. Hobbs. That was what Mary came to take me home for. Mr. Havisham was telling my mamma, and he's a lawyer. Mr. Hobbs sank into his chair and mopped his forehead with his handkerchief. One of us has got a sunstroke, he exclaimed. No, returned Cedric, we haven't. We shall have to make the best of it, Mr. Hobbs. Mr. Havisham came all the way from England to tell us about it. My grandpapa sent him. Mr. Hobbs stared wildly at the innocent, serious little face before him. Who's your grandfather, he asked. Cedric put his hand in his pocket and carefully drew out a piece of paper on which something was written in his own round, irregular hand. I couldn't easily remember it, so I wrote it down on this, he said, and he read aloud slowly. John Arthur Molyneux Errol, Earl of Dorincourt. That is his name, and he lives in a castle, in two or three castles, I think. And my papa, who has died, was his youngest son. And I shouldn't have been a lord or an earl if my papa hadn't died. And my papa wouldn't have been an earl if his two brothers hadn't died. But they all died, and there's no one but me. No boy. And so I have to be one. And my grandpapa has sent for me to come to England. Mr. Hobbs seemed to grow hotter and hotter. He mopped his forehead and his ball spot and breathed hard. He began to see that something very remarkable had happened. But when he looked at the little boy sitting on the cracker box with the innocent, anxious expression in his childish eyes and saw that he was not changed at all, but was simply as he had been the day before, just a handsome, cheerful, brave little fellow in a blue suit and a red neck ribbon, all this information about the nobility bewildered him. He was all the more bewildered because Cedric gave it with such ingenuous simplicity and plainly without realising himself how stupendous it was. What did you say your name was? Mr. Hobbs inquired. It's Cedric Errol, Lord Fauntleroy, answered Cedric. That was what Mr. Havisham called me. He said when I went into the room, and so, this is little Lord Fauntleroy. Well, said Mr. Hobbs, I'll be jiggered. This was an exclamation he always used when he was very much astonished or excited. He could think of nothing else to say just at that puzzling moment. Cedric felt it to be quite a popular and suitable ejaculation. His respect and affection for Mr. Hobbs were so great that he admired and approved of all his remarks. He had not seen enough of society as yet to make him realise that sometimes Mr. Hobbs was not quite conventional. He knew, of course, that he was different from his mamma, but then his mamma was a lady, and he had an idea that ladies were always different from gentlemen. He looked at Mr. Hobbs wistfully. England is a long way off, isn't it? he asked. 
It's across the Atlantic Ocean, Mr. Hobbs answered. That's the worst of it, said Cedric. Perhaps I shall not see you again for a long time. I don't like to think of that, Mr. Hobbs. The best of friends must part, said Mr. Hobbs. Well, said Cedric, we have been friends for a great many years, haven't we? Ever since he was born, Mr. Hobbs answered. He was about six weeks old when you was first walked out on the street. Ah, remarked Cedric with a sigh. I never thought I should have been an earl then. You think, said Mr. Hobbs, there's no getting out of it? I'm afraid not, answered Cedric. My mamma says that my papa would wish me to do it. But if I have to be an earl, there's one thing I can do. I can try to be a good one. I'm not going to be a tyrant, and if there is ever to be another war with America, I shall try to stop it. His conversation with Mr. Hobbs was a long and serious one. Once having got over the first shock, Mr. Hobbs was not so rancorous as might have been expected. He endeavoured to resign himself to the situation, and before the interview was at an end, he had asked a great many questions. As Cedric could answer but few of them, he endeavoured to answer them himself, and being fairly launched on the subject of earls and marquises and lordly estates, explained many things in a way which would have probably astonished Mr. Havisham. Could that gentleman have heard it? But then, there were many things which astonished Mr. Havisham. He had spent all his life in England and was not accustomed to American people and American habits. He had been connected professionally with the family of the Earl of Dorincourt for nearly 40 years, and he knew all about its grand estates and its great wealth and importance. And in a cold, business-like way, he felt an interest in this little boy, who in the future was to be the master and owner of them all. The future Earl of Dorincourt. He had known all about the old Earl's disappointment in his elder sons, and all about his fierce rage at Captain Cedric's American marriage, and he knew how he still hated the gentle little widow and would not speak of her except with bitter and cruel words. He insisted that she was only a common American girl who had entrapped his son into marrying her because she knew he was an Earl's son. The old lawyer himself had more than half believed this was all true. He'd seen a great many selfish, mercenary people in his life, and he had not a good opinion of Americans. When he had been driven into the cheap street and his coupe had stopped before the cheap small house, he had felt actually shocked. It seemed really quite dreadful to think that the future owner of Dorincourt Castle and Wyndham Towers and Shorworth and all the other stately splendors should have been born and brought up in an insignificant house in a street with a sort of green grocery at the corner. He wondered what kind of child he would be, what kind of mother he had. He rather shrank from seeing them both. He had a sort of pride in the noble family whose legal affairs he had conducted so long and would have annoyed him very much to have found himself obliged to manage a woman who would seem to him a vulgar, money-loving person, with no respect for her dead husband's country and the dignity of his name. It was a very old name and a very splendid one, and Mr. Havisham had a great respect for it himself, though he was only a cold, keen, business-like old lawyer. When Mary handed him into the small parlour, he looked around it critically. It was plainly furnished, but it had a home-like look. There were no cheap, common ornaments and no cheap, gaudy pictures. The few adornments on the walls were in good taste, 
and about the room were many pretty things which a woman's hand might have made. Not at all bad so far, he had said to himself, but perhaps the captain's taste predominated. But when Mrs. Errol came into the room, he began to think she herself might have had something to do with it. If he had not been quite a self-contained and stiff old gentleman, he would probably have started when he saw her. She looked, in the simple black dress, fitting closely to her slender figure, more like a young girl than the mother of a boy of seven. She had a pretty, sorrowful young face and a very tender, innocent look in her large brown eyes. The sorrowful look that had never quite left her face since her husband had died. Cedric was used to seeing it there. The only times he had ever seen it fade out had been when he was playing with her or talking to her and had said some old-fashioned thing or used some long word he had picked up out of the newspapers or in his conversations with Mr. Hobbs. He was fond of using long words and he was always pleased when they made her laugh, though he could not understand why they were laughable. They were quite serious matters with him. The lawyer's experience taught him to read people's characters very shrewdly and as soon as he saw Cedric's mother, he knew that the old earl had made a great mistake in thinking her a vulgar, mercenary woman. Mr. Havisham had never married. He had never even been in love. But he divined that this pretty young creature with the sweet voice and sad eyes had married Captain Errol only because she loved him with all her affectionate heart, and that she had never once thought it an advantage that he was an earl's son. And he saw he should have no trouble with her and he began to feel that perhaps little Lord Fauntleroy might not be such a trial to his noble family after all. The captain had been a handsome fellow, and the young mother was very pretty, and perhaps the boy might be well enough to look at. When he first told Mrs. Errol what he had come for, she turned very pale. Oh, she said, will he have to be taken away from me? We love each other so much. He's such a happiness to me. He's all I have. I've tried to be a good mother to him. And her sweet young voice trembled, and the tears rushed into her eyes. You don't know what he's been to me, she said. The lawyer cleared his throat. I'm obliged to tell you, he said, that the Earl of Dorincourt is not, is not very friendly toward you. He's an old man, and his prejudices are very strong. He's always especially disliked America and Americans, and was very much enraged by his son's marriage. I'm sorry to be the bearer of so unpleasant a communication, but he's very fixed in his determination not to see you. His plan is that Lord Fauntleroy shall be educated under his own supervision, that he shall live with him. The Earl is attached to Dorincourt Castle and spends a great deal of time there. He's a victim to inflammatory gout and is not fond of London. Lord Fauntleroy will, therefore, be likely to live chiefly at Dorincourt. The Earl offers you a home. Court Lodge, which is situated pleasantly and is not very far from the castle. He also offers you a suitable income. Lord Fauntleroy will be permitted to visit you. The only stipulation is that you shall not visit him or enter the park gates. You see, you will not be really separated from your son. And, I assure you, madam, the terms are not so harsh as, as they might have been. The advantage of such surroundings and education as Lord Fauntleroy will have, I am sure you must see, will be very great. He felt a little uneasy lest she should begin to cry or make a scene, as he knew some women would have done, 
It embarrassed and annoyed him to see women cry. But she did not. She went to the window and stood with her face turned away for a few moments. And he saw she was trying to steady herself. Captain Errol was very fond of Dorincourt, she said at last. He loved England and everything English. It was always a grief to him that he was parted from his home. He was proud of his home and of his name. He would wish, I know he would wish, that his son should know the beautiful old places and be brought up in such a way as would be suitable to his future position. Then she came back to the table and stood, looking at Mr. Havisham very gently. My husband would wish it, she said. It would be best for my little boy. I know, I am sure the Earl would not be so unkind as to try to teach him not to love me, and I know, even if he tried, that my little boy is too much like his father to be harmed. He has a warm, faithful nature and a true heart. He would love me even if he did not see me, and so as long as we may see each other, I ought not to suffer much. She thinks very little of herself, the lawyer thought. She does not make any terms for herself. Madam, he said aloud, I respect your consideration for your son. He will thank you for it when he is a man. I assure you, Lord Fauntleroy will be most carefully guarded, and every effort will be used to ensure his happiness. The Earl of Dorincourt will be as anxious for his comfort and well-being as you yourself could be. I hope, said the tender little mother in a rather broken voice, that his grandfather will love Seti. The little boy has a very affectionate nature, and he has always been loved. Mr. Havisham cleared his throat again. He could not quite imagine the gouty, fiery-tempered old Earl loving anyone very much, but he knew it would be in his interest to be kind, in his irritable way, to the child who was to be his heir. He knew, too, that if Seti were at all a credit to his name, his grandfather would be proud of him. Lord Fauntleroy will be comfortable, I am sure, he replied. It was with a view to his happiness that the Earl desired that you should be near enough to him to see him frequently. He did not think it would be discreet to repeat the exact words the Earl had used, which were in fact neither polite nor amiable. Mr. Havisham preferred to express his noble patron's offer in smoother and more courteous language. He had another slight shock when Mrs. Errol asked Mary to find her little boy and bring him to her, and Mary told her where he was. Sure, I'll find him easy enough, ma'am, she said, for it's with Mr. Hobbs he is in this minute, sitting on his high stool by the counter and talking politics, most likely, or enjoying himself among the soap and candles and sensible as you please. Mr. Hobbs has known him all his life, Mrs. Errol said to the lawyer. He's very kind to Seti, and there's a great friendship between them. Remembering the glimpse he had caught of the store as he passed it, and having a recollection of the barrels of potatoes and apples and the various odds and ends, Mr. Havisham felt his doubts rise again. In England, gentlemen's sons did not make friends of grocery men, and it seemed to him a rather singular proceeding. It would be very awkward if the child had bad manners and a disposition to like low company. One of the bitterest humiliations of the old Earl's life had been that his two elder sons had been fond of low company. Could it be, he thought, that this boy shared their bad qualities instead of his father's good qualities? He was thinking uneasily about this as he talked to Mrs. Errol until the child came into the room. 
When the door opened, he actually hesitated a moment before looking at Cedric. It would perhaps have seemed very strange to a great many people who knew him, if they could have known the curious sensations that passed through Mr. Havisham. When he looked down at the boy who ran into his mother's arms, he experienced a revulsion of feeling which was quite exciting. He recognized in an instant that Hare was one of the finest and handsomest little fellows he had ever seen. His beauty was something unusual. He had a strong, lithe, graceful little body and a manly little face. He held his childish head up and carried himself with a brave air. He was so like his father that it was rather startling. He had his father's golden hair and his mother's brown eyes, but there was nothing sorrowful or timid in them. They were innocently fearless eyes. He looked as if he had never feared or doubted anything in his life. He is the best-bred-looking and handsomest little fellow I ever saw, was what Mr. Havisham thought. What he said aloud was simply, and so, this is little Lord Fauntleroy. Good night.